Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Ula Huatari. Ula is an investment manager at Fintfund, a Finnish development financier and professional impact investor. Ula focuses on origination and execution of financial sector investments and projects with gender initiatives. Ula has been one of the driving forces of Finfund's gender strategy, and Finfund has since April 2019 invested over 121 million euros in companies that promote women's empowerment in developing countries. Ula's background is in asset management with a special focus on microfinance. She has also been responsible for Finfund's treasury. Prior to joining FinFund in 2012, Ula worked as a treasury professional at a global company, Chimera PLC, and in different roles in commercial banks. Ula holds an MSc in accounting from Helsinki School of Economics. In this podcast interview, Ula talks to us about some of the key problems and challenges in the developing world. We talk about gender equality as one of the sustainable development goals and how big an opportunity this is in the developing world. We talk about the FinFund, the key criteria used to invest, measuring impact, gender lens investing, and what this looks like on a practical level. We talk about female entrepreneurship, and I ask Ula to describe in her view what the future will look like 10 to 15 years from now in the developing world. And to finish up, Ula explains how women can engage much more as impact investors. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. And please note, this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Ula, welcome to the Purse Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to promote gender equality. Amazing. And obviously one of my favorite topics. But before we get into the questions, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey to where you are today? So first of all, greetings from the remote area of Finland at the moment in northeastern Finland, next to Russian border, where I'm originally from. I'm a farmer's daughter and in Finland's we have a pretty good education system and I was educated and then I wanted to see world. So through different jobs, I ended up working at FinFund as an investment manager, got interested in developing countries and working for FinFund also started to think about women's empowerment and gender equality. And I realized that actually it comes from my past. It was interesting that when I joined FinFund, somebody asked me, that what is the purpose, why I am working for development finance institution. And I thought at that time, I thought that it's just, it's just a job. But with these eight years that I have worked at FinFund, it's a long time. I have realized that there is really purpose why I'm with this organization. So my childhood family, I have four big brothers and grown up at a farm. So of course, in this cultural setting, Women's roles at that time were very different than men's role, but still uh, my I have a strong mother who was always very supportive and herself also worked outside the family farm. So did a lot of work, but always encouraged for education and being independent. 
So now at my work with developing countries uh, and private sector investments, that what I see when I visit kind of the developing countries uh, where I travel for work. So of course, not now during the pandemic, but before that. So it's very inspiring. And I hope that kind of all the people in the world have the same opportunities that I have had. So that through education, you are able to have a profession and make your living and live quite a comfortable life. And Ulu, why did you decide to become an impact investor at the institutional level, as opposed to say, an angel investor or a venture capitalist? So prior to joining FinFund, I worked with banks and corporate treasuries. So still in the world of finance, but how I came across FinFund was actually that I noticed a job advert in which FinFund was looking for a treasury manager. I was kind of taking care of their funding. It's not only government money that FinFund is using, but they also tap capital markets themselves. So I joined that position. And the reason that I joined FinFund was that I noticed that they are working with developing world and I have been always interested in different cultures and countries. So that was the reason, first of all, joining FinFund. And of course, people who work in the field of finance, there is much more exciting and demanding jobs in investment banks and so on. But for some reason, I was drawn to development finance. And I think that development finance or impact investing, it's not compromising financial returns. Rather, we think that sustainable finance and financial returns does not exclude positive development impact. So it is really more than just financial returns that we are talking about. So that's how I got to the FinFund. And I must say that these years, those have really flown. I don't even notice because I'm so much enjoying the kind of projects that we do. So, of course, the operating environments in which we invest in They are challenging and there are several challenges to overcome. But of course, it is extremely rewarding to see the positive results that then happen alongside the financial prosperity that these projects bring. At the end of the day, it's also curiosity. Curiosity, understanding different cultures and different people and also building a better world. Here, here. For context then, Can you talk us through some of the key problems or challenges generally in the developing world? And you obviously have a keen eye on this to understand it from an investor point of view. How have these potentially also got worse during the pandemic? And I guess I'm also curious to know, why is it taking so long to address these problems? And you may have a different view on this. Just maybe... As a background, so it was quite interesting for me to come from the completely private sector, financially driven organizations to work with FinFund, because that's where I first came across these challenges in my work. And of course, key problems and challenges are defined by United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, also known as Global Goals, which were adopted by all United Nations member states in 2015. The agenda 2030, so that we achieve the inclusive growth and sustainable development. And I very well remember, actually, at FinFund, we had a workshop that was carried out by our development impact team, in which we were getting to know these 17 sustainable development goals. And in that workshop, my colleagues were kind of asking each one of us to pick 
the one that resonates most. And of course, I ended up picking SDG 5, which is gender equality. But of course, when we look at SDGs, many of those SDGs actually have components of gender equality in them. So just to mention a few, it's reducing poverty, food security, health, quality education, climate change, and and many others. So I think that that gives us framework in which we work to trying to contribute to overcoming these challenges. However, I was looking into World Economic Forum's data, and there it was said that the financing cap to overcome these challenges, it's $2.5 trillion, the annual financing cap. It would take only 3% of global GDP if we're invested in sustainable development so that these challenges could be addressed. So still in this context also, these problems need financing. Mm -hmm. The question why it takes so long to overcome these challenges, I feel like too small person to reply to that question. I guess that very often it's about money. Mm. And especially now that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, economic growth has weakened. So it's even more challenging to find financing to solve these global challenges that we are facing. Yep. And have you seen from the data you've looked at, for example, that the pandemic has made, say, gender equality a lot worse? So we've gone back a couple of years in the developing world as well, because we know in the developed world, we've certainly seen that. Unfortunately, yes. And if we are moving to talk about gender equality, first of all, the link between gender diversity and sustainable economic growth, it is well documented. And there are studies about that. So we are talking about diversity and taking different genders into account, economic growth in societies. So unfortunately, there is signs that while you know economic growth is weakening, women are disproportionately affected because women take most of the res- responsibility for caring for the family. Women tend to earn less, and when they tend to earn less, they also save less. And unfortunately, women hold less secure jobs. I was reading that jobs held by women are 19% at more risk globally. So, of course, unfortunately, women get hit by this pandemic more than men do. It is very sad to read. And considering that during the three or less years that I have been working actively on gender equality, and we were seeing really that momentum for genderless investing was growing. I hope that we are able to keep the momentum. But when the pandemic started, clearly there was so much uncertainty that genderless investing necessarily wasn't the first thing for us to think about, but rather trying to make sure that investments to developing world will continue. But of course, now it's one year from the beginning of this crisis. And now I think that at least at FinFund, we have been able, first of all, to keep on investing. And I'm happy to report that at FinFund, we really are encompassing gender also into our investment decisions. So from that perspective, I'm happy about that. But definitely, I think that the poverty, I was reading somewhere that it was actually you and women, was their report was showing that the pandemic will push 96 million people into extreme poverty 
meaning that they are living on $1.9 or less on a day. And 47 million of those are women and girls. So unfortunately, when it comes to low-income populations, there is more hardships there, and we are taking steps back. In terms of the role that women play in helping to address these challenges in the developing world that you've just talked about, can you explain why women are so key? Yeah, so the UN SDGs that I just mentioned, although SDG 5 is specifically focused on gender equality and empowerment of all women and girls, still many, if not all, of these 17 SDGs have dedicated gender dimensions within them. Although I'm all the time talking about gender equality, it's kind of good to point out that it's more about diversity and inequality. Because then if we look at diversity, there comes also race, ethnicity, sexuality, disability, and so on, and not just gender. It's just that in one's job, I think what is allowed in my mind is that it's okay if you find purpose. You, you cannot, as an individual, you are not able to solve all the world's problems, but if you find some or one that resonates with you, I think it's okay that you personally promote that. It's like I have younger colleagues that I always uh, try to encourage because we, you know, we are working on, on project teams. So it's projects that we work on. And then I have a dedicated team for uh, certain projects. And then I have colleagues there and they know that I'm very passionate about promoting gender equality. And then they say that, Ulla, I'm sorry, but you know, I don't necessarily feel the same. And I say, that's okay. You just need to find the one that resonates with you and then you can find purpose in that one. Hmm. More and more nowadays, I'm very grateful that I can do a job in world of finance and doing profitable investments and yet have kind of course that I want to work for. I'm blessed in that sense, I would say. I think it's really important finding purpose, you know, whatever it is that you're passionate about, if you can have that then as your North Star mm. and specifically thinking about investing, whether at an institutional level or as a retail investor, if your work is very much aligned with your values. I think it just brings so much meaning to your day. Absolutely. You know, sometimes I look back because, as I said, years really fly. And I wonder why I didn't do this and that. I could be much more wealthier. But again, I start to think that what really matters. And I think it's a good balance if you find purpose and then you are able to make meaningful livelihoods yourself. So it's actually what impact investing is not compromising financial returns, but still generating positive development impact. And there's a real change in the narrative around impact investing. It used to be that if you invest for impact, you're not that interested in making a return. And as we've seen, that is truly not the case. If we look at, generally speaking, at ESG funds, certainly last year, 2020, they have outperformed more traditional funds. So as well as doing good in the world, you're actually making money and you're making you know, better returns than the traditional funds. I'm really happy that that has now turned because I personally believe, and I guess also studies show that, but it is profitable companies that are able to have positive impact. And first of all, because they are prosperous and able to scale they are able to offer more jobs and pay more taxes of the profits that they make. So I think that it really makes sense. 
And of course, having educated at the School of Economics, I think that it was also important for me from the very beginning that FinFund, first of all, is making private sector investments and we require profitability from the companies that we invest in already in the beginning. So I'm very happy about that. And to me, at least, it makes sense. Now, I wonder whether it's possible, again, for context for our listeners to quantify gender equality as an opportunity and then specifically in monetary terms in the developing world. Yeah, always when looking at these global numbers or developing world numbers, so they are talking about trillions or billions. And those are so huge figures that it sounds to me that there really is opportunity for everyone. And as I said, there is a financing gap. So if World Bank is estimating that gap to be in trillions or billions, so definitely there is an opportunity. I must say that during the two and a half years that I have been in this, and, and really during the time that gender investing has gained momentum, there has emerged more studies. And if we look back when we started, there wasn't that many. Very famously quoted is the McKinsey study from 2015, in which they were saying that $12 trillion could be added to a global GDP by 2025 by advancing women's equality. Now, it was just earlier this month when Bank of America published a new analysis estimating that uh, full gender equality could add $28 trillion to global GDP by 2025. So that figure has over doubled. So definitely it's a big figure. <laughs> that also makes sense if we look at women's participation to workforce in different countries. So if we look at our target countries like India, where it, it is very low, I think it was only 25% or so. So definitely in developing world where women's participation to workforce is less than in Western world and in Nordic countries. So definitely there is a lot of opportunity. But quantifying that opportunity, I think, as said, uh, more smarter people than I have been estimating that. But I think that giving exact figure, what is the opportunity for kind of advancing gender equality in developing world? I don't know if no one knows the real figure, but intuitively already understanding that women's participation in the economy in these countries is low, that there, mm. it must be enormous opportunity. Yes, totally agree. Now, Ulla, I'd love to move on to talk about FinFund. You're an investment manager there. It would be great to understand more about the investment thesis and what do you invest in. So I'm specifically interested in why FinFund is investing in the developing world, assets under management, and also what's the average size of your investments. I'm so happy, actually, that you contacted me as I'm actually one of the persons that are making these investments. And it's not too often that we get to speak. So I was delighted about this opportunity and uh, more so to promote also FinFund. First of all, we come from a small country, Finland, and FinFund, of course, is a smaller institution. So I think it's great also to give voice to smaller countries and smaller institutions. So we are, as you rightly stated, an institutional investor. We are impact investor, but we are also a development finance institution that has been around for 40 years. 
So we are majority owned by the state of Finland. And we have similar organization, for example, in other European countries, actually in each European country, we have similar sister organization that is development finance institution and doing very similar work than we do. And we very often also co-invest together. So just to kind of clarify that FinFund invests only in developing countries as defined by OECD. So that's the only kind of target area for us where we invest in. And it is only privately owned businesses in which we invest. And as I have already mentioned, so it's market terms. So although we are government funded, we expect market term returns, meaning that we are not there in these countries. We are not crowding out kind of commercial funding, but rather we are there to trying to mobilize more funding to these countries. So if we talk about our size, so I was referring that we are smaller. So our current portfolio and investment commitments, currently we are about 1 billion euros. So if you compare to other development finance institutions, so definitely FinFund is from the smaller end. However, I must say that being slightly smaller. So we are 90 people working for FinFund and based in Helsinki. But that means that we are also able to be more agile and moving in the world of development finance as quickly as we can. Our ticket size also is very flexible. So we can start as small as $1 million, although that is maybe less frequently nowadays. And the end of the scale is 25 to $30 million. And why the range is so wide, it's because we want to maintain flexible. And it's also because when we look at the poorer countries, actually FinFund is famous in, in developing circles in that we very often like to also look into least developed countries. And in those cases, we might want to do smaller sized investments than we would do in more developed countries. So that's how we see when it comes to ticket size. The average ticket size, I would say nowadays, is between 8 and $10 million. And then if we think about which instruments we use, so that can be anything from equity, mezzanine financing to debt. So we really very much structure financing to the needs of the client in the target country. And if we talk about sectors which we look at, so we are sector agnostic. As long as the project it is profitable and generating positive development impact, we are happy to look into that. But we have certain sectors that we emphasize. So it's renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, and financial institutions that are our focus sectors at the moment. However, lately we have been doing also telecommunications, healthcare, and education. So that's kind of the universe of opportunities in these countries. Uh, it's enormous. And of course, then also talking about FinFund. So we have a special focus on investments that advance gender equality and which mitigate the climate change and help people in developing countries to adapt to the climate change. And actually, those two themes also come from our owner, State of Finland. So Finland very much likes to promote gender equality and then help to mitigate climate change. Wonderful. And am I right in thinking your main country focus is Africa? 
But you invest in other developing countries as well. Yes. In my daily work, I have in front of me the list from OECD, the DAC list of official development aid recipients. That is the country list that we use in our work. When we look at our portfolio and commitments, nearly 50% is in Africa and then 20% in Asia, 15% in Latin America, and then there is rest. But yes, Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is very much our focus. I've read about the fact that you're a long-term investor, and I'm very interested to hear you talk about that and how that plays out on a practical level. A little anecdote. When I started my career, I was very interested in in world of finance. And in the beginning, I was working with foreign exchange, and that is very fast-paced environment. And decisions are done in, in seconds or minutes and I was very kind of restless young person and then I thought that I need to learn patience and (laughs) I ended up (laughs) working with a company that is saying that they provide long-term patient capital. So it has been a learning journey for me to be patient. It really comes from the fact that the business environments in which we do our investments are quite challenging. And there is a lot of uncertainty if we consider regulatory environments, you know, lacking infrastructure and so on. So often when we finance companies in these um, environments, they require patient capital because you don't know how long it takes for you to receive certain approvals or permits or whatever. And then, of course, because the environment, whether there might be some natural crisis or, or whatever, so you don't know, there might be surprises that will require patient capital. In those cases, FinFund is not the first investor to pull the money. Rather, we want to help our investee companies to see through these challenges that they are facing and find ways to work together. And it means Also that, for example, if it's a loan and our financing comes to an end, it might be that we need to restructure our financings for these companies. So that is what it essentially means, that we are there to generate those positive development impacts, and that requires patient capital. If we are talking of all instruments that we have, there is, again, quite a range. I think that the shortest-term financing that we have been providing Of course, there is as short as three years and then, you know, long-term projects like forestry is one of the type of projects that FinFund has been promoting very much because we come from Finland and we have expertise for forestry. So obviously it takes quite a long time for trees to grow. And also the other type of projects are the, the renewable energy projects. So that might take 20 to 25 years. So that's kind of the span. Off the top of my head, I would say that maybe seven years is average. But many of our projects are long ones. It makes a lot of sense. You don't want to be putting money in to a project or an institution in the developing world and then be pulling out quite soon. As you say, it's a complex environment and it takes time for these investments to play out, right? Yeah, and uh, maybe maybe just not to give wrong picture to people. So what I'm definitely happy to see is that It's not only development finance institutions that do this, but there is obviously growing interest also from the private sector to mention that FinFund, together with one of the Finnish banks, 
launched a fund. Obviously, it was for institutional investors, but still it's great that there is private sector institutional investor interest to these markets. So I think that impact investing and profit with impact market, there is growing interest for that and is rapidly growing if it previously was just of marginal interest and uh, rather a curiosity. So now I think that impact investing is coming more mainstream. And to say one figure, so Global Impact Investment Network is estimating that the global total size for impact investing market is $715 billion. So there is, again, billions opportunity. So happy to see that it's becoming more mainstream. Yeah, definitely not small. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what is the key criteria that you use to determine whether to invest or not? And can you shed some light on the decision-making process that you go through? Yeah, so the screening criteria that we use, it's very simple. It's threefold. First of all, the companies that we invest in, they need to be financially sustainable and making profits. So FinFund in general does not invest in startups. But rather, we are partner for scaling phase so that the companies have already reached profitability. There might be sometimes exceptions to this, but obviously it also comes from that the size that we don't have limitless resources. So first was profitability. The second is environmentally and socially responsible. So the company, if they are not yet there, they need to commit to become environmentally and socially responsible. And the third one is measurable development impact. So we want to be able to measure the development impact that we have. So it's profitability, environmentally and socially responsible, and then development impact. So those three criteria is kind of what we look at when we start to screen a project. Then uh, about the decision-making process. So as I was referring to already earlier, FinFund is a smaller investor meaning that our organization is not very hierarchical. If I want to, I can call to our CEO and he would respond. So at FinFund, we have investment committee that is is looking the proposal that we investment managers take to the investment committee. And then the final decision is made by FinFund's board of directors. And in between that, of course, we perform our own due diligence. So after the initial screening phase, if we receive clearance in principle for certain project from our investment committee and we start to look into the project, we then have a project team, which is led by an investment manager. And in that due diligence, we touch areas such as financial, legal areas, responsible tax is very important to us, development impact, and we are trying to measure that and consider what kind of development impacts we will have in the future. Of course, gender and then also environmental and social aspects. So there is a team of at least five people working on a single project to kind of make the proposed investment decision that is then ultimately made by FinFund's board of directors. So it sounds like a lengthy process, but it can be done fairly swiftly if the company in which we are investing is responding quickly. And and obviously, our kind of investor has a lot of questions to ask, but I think that making the best outcome is that we understand in what we are investing. And actually, 
after the investment decision, the journey only begins because then we start to negotiate really the documentation, the legal agreement uh, with the investee company. And then from the disbursement, we start to monitor the project and we are with the client the whole life of the investment. At the end of investment, it might be that the client needs more money and then there will be follow-on investment or then the client is attractive enough to get more commercial funding and FinFunds funding is not any more needed. One of the things that I'm very curious about, Ula, is the measurement aspect of impact. And, and you've talked about you know, development impact, obviously ensuring that you're investing for gender equality. You know, SDGs is so crucial, right? It's been important for the work that you do. How do you measure the impact that your investment is having and how easy or difficult is that? Because I know this is a growing field. It's definitely not set in stone. There's a lot of work to be done there. But how are you approaching it in FinFund? It's so great that I have a whole development impact team supporting me in my work. There are certain measures that are defined together with other development finance institutions, like number of jobs created, for example, or number of tax revenue generated. And then when we look specifically on gender, then there is a whole set of own indicators. But you are right in saying that even from the initial stages of our investment, understanding development impact is crucial because that's obviously alongside financial returns that we are looking for. So even from the time that I receive opportunity, my inbox, I try to think, what is the development impact of this project? For example, because I receive so many leads for these projects, but unfortunately, when we, when we start to invest in these companies, because we need the data to be able to track the development impact. So during our investment cycle, we are continuously monitoring development impact and environmental and social aspects. So actually, my colleagues in development impact team and environmental and social team are sending questionnaires to our clients to understand how they are doing in these aspects. And then, of course, we also receive financial statements. So we very closely monitor these companies so that we are able to understand the impact of FinFund's financing. Can you explain what GenderLens investing is? We've talked about it a little bit, but why is investing through a gender lens or with a focus on gender equality a key part of what you do? And, and what does that look like on a practical level? That's so great question because that's what I'm passionate about. Gender lens investing, it's a term that has been there for quite some time. And I don't think that there is universal definition for it. But the key things in that is that intentionality and measurability. In gender lens investing, we are addressing gender disparities between men and women. Because as said earlier, if all genders would be able to participate, there is enormous potential in economic growth. So that is why it is important having diversity in our societies and capital markets also. So ultimately, I think it's about creating more value and achieving better returns through diversity. So it's about value creation. Now, at FinFund, 
I must tell a bit about the journey that we had been on, how it all started two and a half years ago. Why I was so happy that you contacted me was because I was the person who wanted this so much three years ago to start at FinFund. And of course, I'm not in the kind of management team at FinFund, but I'm just a plain worker at FinFund. I was passionate about this, and my supervisor at that time told me that somebody had asked her, would FinFund be interested in looking into women's empowerment and and gender equality within the European development finance institutions that were interested in this? And I said, of course we want to. And at that time, there was few European development finance institutions that were very actively starting to promote this. And one of those DFIs was UK's CDC, who have put very much emphasis on this and also resources. So when we started this journey at FinFund, there was already kind of other DFIs also looking into this. And of course, that gave us, first of all, a community in which to think about this together. And I am very much grateful to other European DFIs for the support and inspiration and innovation that we have been doing during the past two and a half years. Because at the same time, when this European DFI Gender Financial Collaborative, it was called that time, started, around that time also G7 countries DFIs were working on 2X community. So they then launched 2X Challenge. And after that, now I think it was this year that they will then merge. And FinFund was one of the first DFIs to join the G7 DFIs on this 2x challenge initiative. So at FinFund, because we are slightly smaller organization than our sister organization in Europe, I must say that from the very beginning, we wanted to be practical. So because we are only 90 people, it means that we don't have separate teams on gender. Rather, we are all doing the work. And of course, how you are supposed to start this kind of initiatives is always that you need to have buy-in from the top management. Luckily, at FinFund, our owner, so the, the government of Finland, finds gender equality also very important. And naturally, there was buy-in then from our management team. So there need to be intentionality and and leadership that comes. And secondly, then we need to walk the talk. So very early on, having discussions with other European DFIs understood that unless your own organization isn't promoting these values of gender equality, it is very difficult to ask your investee companies these questions on gender equality. And then is the framework. And that is actually where the value of the international 2X community comes in, because at the time that FinFund joined the 2X challenge, the G7 DFIs had already been thinking about the framework. What is the criteria for investment that qualifies for 2X challenge? Because at the time back then, there was a goal that 2X challenge would mobilize funding for projects that promote gender equality and women's empowerment. And at that time, I think that the goal was to mobilize $3 billion, but that goal has now been reached and and it has increased the amount that we are now targeting. 
Anyway, so the FinFund as other DFIs and the 2X community, there is certain criteria that will then qualify investment as a gender investment. Gender investment is a term that we within FinFund talk about. And the criteria is, first of all, it's entrepreneurship. So we want to support women as entrepreneurs and increase women's access to capital. That's the first one. Then it's leadership. So the results of studies suggest that presence of women in corporate leadership positions improves the company's performance. So we want that women are seen in leadership positions, whether it's boards or C-suite, the top management of the company. The third is providing quality employment for women. So improving gender equity in the workplace. So the gender diverse teams have better results. And also that as an employer, our investee companies offer quality jobs to women. And then the last criteria is consumption criteria. There are companies that provide products and services catering to women's need and encourage women's social and economic participation. We want that there are products and services available that benefit women's and girls' inclusion to the economy. And so that women and women's needs are taken into consideration from the design to distribution phase. So that women's needs are think about when, when marketing products. So 2X criteria, it is entrepreneurship, leadership, quality employment, consumption. So either of those criteria, if our investment or the company in which we invest fills one of these criteria, we qualify it as gender investment. It's about commitment. It doesn't mean that at the start of our investment, the investment needs to qualify because it can qualify at any point of time during our investment. So the idea is that we have the discussions with the clients. And I must say that on a practical level, what GenderLens Investing means at FinFund, I'm so grateful to all my colleagues that took this and they really are thinking about this. So as I said, that we are considering development impact already in the screening phase of our investment we are also considering gender. So gender lens investing, it's one lens through which we look at our investment. So we are already thinking about this when we are screening a project. When we started our journey, so we were providing to our colleagues, our investment managers, and actually all staff of FinFund, uh, very concise, clear trainings about gender lens investing. And what really assisted us is the 2X criteria. It is clear and simple framework through which we are able to screen our projects. And I must say that really the breakthrough moment at FinFund, and I'm so happy that our chief investment officer from the very beginning of our journey, he was willing to have a dedicated KPI for investment managers on gender. Because the KPIs, they really drive us investment managers. So I think that at least at FinFund, that kind of motivation has pushed gently our investment managers to think about these things. Initially, in GenderLens investing, what was my goal was to raise awareness, to make the business case. Why GenderLens investing? It's a smart business. It's not about because it's nice or because it's the right thing to do. It's because there are studies that there is better business performance. 
So it was raising awareness at that time and explaining why we are doing it. Because it's an evolving journey, so the criteria has slightly changed. And of course, now we are moving on and trying to find ways how to do this. So that's where we are. And so I'm very thankful for all my colleagues to embracing this. Of course, at FinFund, so as said, we are only 90. So it was easier to kind of take this through our organization. But it is now integrated part of our investment process. I'm not saying that we didn't do that before because our development impact team did it already before. I'm just saying that these two and a half years, it has become more prominent at FinFund because now everybody's aware of this more so than it was before this whole journey started. I think this is so powerful and you've made so many important points there, Ulla. But as we've seen, generally speaking, if we don't set KPIs in order to drive diversity, gender equality, we know that change is very, very slow. And I love the fact that FinFund, you're walking the walk, talking the talk. In every way, you know, you have considered gender lens investing, everyone in your business has these KPIs, you have a framework, you know how to apply it to new investing opportunities. It's fantastic to see. Thank you. And I still want to say that it's more pragmatic approach. Sometimes I'm envious of bigger organizations because they have whole gender teams and they are thinking about theories and making studies. And I feel bad because we don't have resources to do that. So we are actually using the resources, kind of the studies and frameworks and other material from our sister organizations. And I'm also thankful for that. And I think that in impact investing world, because in internet, you are able to find esteemed organizations providing material for free. So I think that there is a lot of material already by now on genderless investing. So anyone interested in taking this as part of their investment strategy can certainly do so nowadays. It has to be well thought, but it doesn't need to be anything difficult. It can be very simple and, you know, painless to everyone. It's easy to kind of take as one additional lens through which look in your investments. Just picking up on that, Ulla, if you're thinking about introducing gender into your investment decisions and you've not done it before, what's a very quick and easy way to apply that? First thing that comes to my mind is, of course, looking into the 2x challenge website, because there the criteria, for example, is open up. And although there is not yet one universal framework, I think that so many countries, DFIs, have developed that uh, so that I think that is kind of one universal benchmark to start with gender lens investing, looking into those criteria that has been well thought. Great advice. So I'd like to talk about women entrepreneurs. Again, one of my favorite topics. What market sectors do female entrepreneurs focus on in the developing world? And what are some examples of the types of businesses that they start? First of all, when we look at the globally, of course, being a female entrepreneur, it looks like it's not easy. One interesting thing that I want to actually mention now, so I'm now, because of the lockdown, partial lockdown in Helsinki, now I'm in my remote hometown village. And it's interesting, actually, my brothers has been sending me 
female entrepreneur startup classes in our area. Uh, they are thinking that I should join them. And it would be most interesting because I must say that the area where I'm from is one of the poorest area in Finland. And we can compare that to our target countries. So it's a bit similar. So I have been thinking that maybe I should go to one of those classes this, that are offered to female entrepreneurs in this area, because basically that's the same that we want that the financial institutions that we cooperate in our target countries would offer to their clients, to, to the female entrepreneurs. But anyways, that was sidetracked. Female entrepreneurs, I think it very much depends also country by country and also whether we are looking rural settings, uh, urban settings. So it might be different. But in general, because very often, for example, I have been working with low-income women. So first of all, female entrepreneurs are more likely to operate in the informal sector or in traditional female sectors. Worldwide, at least 30% of women in the non-agricultural labor force are self-employed in the informal sector. And in Africa, that figure is over 60%. So often those, those businesses are informal. And then very often they are also home-based, simply because it allows women to satisfy competing demands for their time as they balance a disproportionate share of housework and childcare responsibilities. So very often their businesses are such that can be run from home. Another reason that businesses are often home-based is that unfortunately in some countries social norms are at play so that it's not safe for women to travel outside their home because it can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. If we talk about the traditional sectors, and this really reflects what I have seen during my travels, is that very often women are in retail or service sector. And these sectors then often also are non-essential sectors if it's service or trade. Now, during the pandemic, the fact that women often are not working or the women entrepreneurs are not often from or work in non-essential sectors means also that their businesses have been hit worse by the pandemic. I very much remember my last due diligence trip prior to the pandemic last February. I went to Pakistan and there the women that I met, you know, often they were doing stitching work. So that is very traditional type of businesses to which microfinance, for example, gives money. The other type is beauty salons or, or hairdressers. But mm -hmm. very often, small stall holders, that's kind of the low-income women, if we are talking about those businesses. That's kind of the challenge also if we talk about FinFund's financing. As I was mentioning that our ticket size can start as small as 1 million, but uh, preferably our average ticket size is around 8 and $10 million. So then, of course, the challenge really is that if we look at our current portfolio, there is very few female entrepreneurs that would be able to take the absorb FinFund's ticket size uh, if we talk about female entrepreneurs. So very often how we, for example, target these women entrepreneurs is through giving funding to funds or financial institutions that are there on the ground. Who then provide the microfinancing to these female entrepreneurs? Yes, and preferably, of course, what we would love to see that these female businesses would grow bigger and they would be also in the SME finance. And I think that there is really the challenge. It would be wonderful if I, and I'm sure that there are in the world, those female entrepreneurs that have bigger businesses. It's just that 
we haven't yet met them, but hopefully in the future. But of course, there are also several barriers for women and there are still gender gaps that are present if there is, for example, critical skills, because very often women in developing countries, there might be lacking the education, vocational or technical skills, and they might not have the work experience that many men have. So, of course, it's then difficult to start a business. And what I have been really thinking, because I'm also passionate about microfinance, uh, I think that is fascinating. And I'm really hoping, because one of the silver lining of the COVID pandemic is that we are now moving more to digital world. And that, of course, increases efficiency of microfinance as well. But what I'm worried about is that these low-income women, that they will be still lacking more behind because, of course, women are less likely to afford or have access to mobile devices, for example. So that is one of the concerns. And many of these ladies that I have met, they also might be illiterate. And that is also a barrier when using mobile devices. So that is concern that I have. However, many of these institutions that we finance have been trying to tell me that, of course, that is a barrier that can be overcome by educating these people. And of course, as we move on, there is next generation that is helping their parents and so on. But that is one of the things that I'm always worried about, that really that these ladies, because they might be lacking in skills, that they are provided education. Yes. And I guess that there needs to be a lot of government support to kind of help bridge that gap, right, around literacy and and to provide specific skills. Yeah. And it's also, if we talk about microfinance institutions, so we want to work with responsible microfinance institutions, meaning that they make sure the commitment that the client takes when they are taking a loan. So very often these institutions, they also provide training about financial services to these people so that they understand and there won't be over indebtedness, for example. But um, I think that it's manifold the problem and really kind of uh, narrowing the gender gap. It needs to be focused on globally, but especially in these countries. And unfortunately, if you would have the skills, then also one factor is that gender gap might be partially also driven by women's own self-perception and kind of the culture in which we have grown in. So unfortunately, that's also the case. And I can very honestly say, for example, that having brought up with after four brothers, unfortunately, my father <laughs> still sometimes doubts my abilities or somehow is trying to protect me. So I understand that, especially these women in these settings that are very different from mine in Finland, it might be difficult. But I think that women need uh, role models and it's very important to see successful women so that the next generations of women don't think that there's anything preventing them to be successful entrepreneur, for example. I can say that the studies, they really show that gender diverse teams they have about 15% higher return on equity if we talk about global companies. So that's more about gender diverse teams. And it's really about diversity what we are looking here. We are not necessarily looking in a feminist sense about promoting women only. I think that at least from my perspective, I'm really interested in the future where the world is equal, so that women have equal opportunities 
be part of the business world and become entrepreneurs. So that's kind of my personal view on this. And then the studies show that these gender balanced teams make better investment returns. So I believe in those. And I hope that as we are moving more towards gender equality, that the results keep showing this. Okay, here. Is there an example of an investment or success story that you can share and that might be with a female entrepreneur or a company that essentially embodies the values and the principles that you've talked about today? I have one company in mind that I absolutely praise. And when I first heard this lady to speak, I think it was 2016, I was so impressed. Just a wonderful story. So as I said, last February, I was in Pakistan and Pakistan ranks one of the lowest in the world for gender equality, according to the Global Gender Gap Index. One of the lowest in the world, imagine that. So there is a microfinance institution targeting women and low-income communities in Pakistan called Kash Foundation. And the founder, Rosnaf Tafar, she's an exceptional lady, started this microfinance institution about 25 years ago. And what is so special about this microfinance institution is that they are really trying to, not only offering financial services, but they are really trying to influence attitudes and social norms in Pakistan. So social advocacy is an important part of their work. And what the founder, Rosnaf Tafar herself has said about CASP is that they are rather transformational than transactional. And that embodies well what CASP Foundation is doing. I was so impressed when I visited their head office in Lahore their staff, whether it was women or men, they had like completely embraced gender equality. The way that their male staff talk about gender equality, I have never, anywhere in the world, I have never seen or heard the attitudes toward gender equality that they have. So this lady, Rosnaf Tafar, she has been successful in promoting gender equality and running a successful microfinance institutions. So absolutely very good example. And I think one of the best examples that we have in FinFund's portfolio is Gus Foundation from Pakistan. But that is not the level that our investing companies need to necessarily achieve. It's just that they at least at some level commit to promote gender equality. I really, really liked what you said there, Ule, where you talked about The fact that it's not about being a transactional leader, but a transformational one. And uh, you hear this so much, obviously, around impact investing. And I think it's permeating, it's starting to permeate throughout society generally, because we know how much the world has suffered through the pandemic. We've finally woken up to climate change and we need our leadership and the narrative to be about transformation. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. If you have chance, listen to Rosnev Tafar on YouTube. How do you spell her name? It's R-O-S-H-A-N-E-H. That's her first name. Mm-hmm. Z-A-F-A-R is the last name. You will find plenty of material of her on internet, but very inspirational woman. 
Wow, she sounds incredible. I'm definitely going to look her up and I'll mention her when we share the podcast as well. Excellent. If you were to look forward to the next 10 to 15 years, what does the future look like? in these developing countries and and you can think of one specifically if you like and also what does the future look like for women and, and women entrepreneurs in this sort of time frame trying to forecast developing countries considering how diverse those are it's impossible task if we look at the history however i think that as you said impact investing definitely is becoming more mainstream that's for sure. And I'm very happy about it. It's not only financial returns, but it's positive development impact and transformational things that we are looking to make the world a better place for everybody. Now, when we talk about women, women's empowerment, women entrepreneurs, often cited a figure to achieving or to closing the economic gender gap, it will take 257 years. It's such a long time that I'm, uh, it's a pity that I won't be able to see that. I don't think I will either, Ula. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't be laughing, but that's also, it's a, it's a very big figures that we are talking about in the world of impact investing or gender equality and, and gender gap, economic gender gap. It's horrible, 257 years. Why this thing hasn't been made right already earlier? That's awful. However, now thinking that the momentum that genderless investing has been gaining during the past two or three years, it's great. It's about time. But as I've heard from my more senior colleagues, this isn't the first time that the momentum is here. They are saying that the momentum might be stronger, but some 20 years ago or so, there was first, oh, I don't know how many wave, but also kind of more uh, emerging themes around gender equality and closing economic gender gap. However, it was muted. So I'm really hoping that this momentum this time would go on. And also that gender equality, it's not just about uh, women's business, but it's everybody's business. And especially I'm happy about those men that also promote gender equality because it's smart business. However, now I'm hoping that there would be positive results. Also, that there would be more studies showing the smartness and good performance that gender diverse teams are yielding. During the past three years, this has been very much initiated and driven by development finance institutions. However, for this to kind of make it happen, we need this more mainstream. We may need to mobilize more private capital. And I was extremely happy about the announcement by the Norwegian oil fund. I was reading about it on Financial Times at the end of February when Norway's $1.3 trillion oil fund was revealing their position on gender equality. And they were saying that all companies with less than 30% female directors should be considered having to boost that number. We need announcements like that. We need more private sector players, large pools of money to be directed to this course. But of course, so that there is also good financial returns. So I'm optimist. I'm optimist and I'm really hoping and believing that gender lens investing, now we are talking about as a separate item, at least when we talk about development finance institution, environmental and social aspects, those are 
very everyday part of our investments. So I believe that gentlemen's investing, let's say in, in 10 years time, we are probably laughing to this podcast because hopefully then we are wondering why we were talking about this. So I'm, I'm thinking that it will become part of the investment process. So I'm believing in that. And then I'm really hoping that this number, 257 years closing economic gender gap, the figure comes drastically down. And I'm very passionate myself about women's economic empowerment, because ultimately talking about gender equality, it really is about power and that needs to change. And women need to be brought to these tables in which decisions are made. Also uh, overall in the societies, so that also economic decisions are part of that. I'm hoping to see more women, first of all, in the financial sector, because, of course, the capital allocation decisions, when there is more gender diverse teams making these decisions, it also means gender diversity is taking into account in the companies in which we invest. So I'm positive. I'm sure that in 10 years time, this looks very different. That's so well said, Ulan, and I'm 100% with you. I think we need women sitting at the table. We need women, so 50%, right, of women being represented across the board, across every single level at any organization of any kind. And I think then the gender-biased perspective that we currently have as a society will shift so that it reflects a balance, a balance that we need. That's very important what you said. It's about also next generation and how they perceive the world, because that's also where the hope is. Now, as you said about gender bias, I have very strong unconscious bias because of the environment, the rural setting where I was brought up. So I'm hoping that gender equality would be already in these next generation's minds and also that young people and, and young female people would be encouraged to take positions and give voice to these things, because it's important that, especially in developing countries, there is a big young population and it's, it's important that all of them, whether it's male or female or, or whatever gender, are part of the economic growth. Absolutely. We, we could probably do another podcast talking about gender bias and how important it is to change gender norms uh, so that, as you say, boys and girls are brought up to be gender neutral as opposed to gender bias, because there's a lot of unlearning then that needs to take place, right? <laughs> as we are seeing. It's awful because I recognize in myself that I'm an awful person myself when it comes to gender equality, <laughs> yet I'm promoting it. Yeah, no one's immune, right? And it's actually challenging work to make conscious your unconscious bias. It's difficult. But it can be done. Very. <laughs> so the sooner we can start educating our children to see the world in a gender neutral way, the better. Absolutely. One last question, Ulla. You've shared an enormous amount today. So for women who want to engage much more as impact investors, and we know that women are very engaged and very interested to invest in ESG, for example, and they want to also potentially invest in developing countries. What are some of the ways they can invest in your view? This is actually quite a difficult question because I think that it very much, if we're talking about private investors and retail investors and not high net worth individuals or professional investors, 
but for private investors and retail investors, the best is to kind of check the availability of this type of investments in each individual country. Because for example, in the UK and US, the market is so much more bigger than it is, for example, in my country, where there are uh, limited options uh, simply because we are such a small country. So only thing that I can say that if you want to do impact investing, what I know is that there are crowdfunding platforms available that do, for example, impact investing in developing countries. Other than that, I must say that very difficult for me kind of tell you where to look for those because, for example, myself, my biggest investment is building my house in this silent place <laughs> in Finnish forest by the lake. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but other than that, personally, I invest in exchange-traded funds that have certain geographic or, or country focus. But then, of course, making impact investing as a retail investor, that depends on the offer that you have available in your country. And, and obviously, this is not investment advice, but yeah, there are ETFs available that focus specifically on ESG impact. And so you can find those. I also like what you said about, you know, find a crowdfunding website. You can then invest into companies with this specific focus in mind. But again, do your own research, read the T's and C's diligently. That's the best advice. Wonderful. Well, we've spent a long time talking in detail today about gender lens investing <laughs> and obviously gender equality. And I've learned so much as well from you about investing in the developing world. There's so much work that needs to be done there. And I'm thankful for you and your work and the work of the Fin Fund. It's incredible work. I love the fact that you invest for impact. So thank you. And thank you for being a role model as well for women who want to very much move into this space. And if listeners want to connect with you, if they want to find you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way is definitely LinkedIn. I'm there with my name. So please do contact. I very much like LinkedIn and I have a correspondence with many people through LinkedIn. But thank you, Jana, again for this opportunity and reaching out to me. I have very much enjoyed. I was very surprised when you contacted because uh, I said, us investment managers don't get too often this kind of opportunity. So it has been true privilege. I also enjoyed, and I do hope that this inspires many other private sector investors to look into gender lens investing and impact investing. It's fascinating world and everybody really needs to work for building better and equitable world. Here, here. Thank you, Ulla. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>